for him. But we return this morning again to the book of 1 Peter. The book of 1 Peter, this great epistle that we've began a few, I don't know, maybe two months ago. And we hope to finish up in the next several months. But we're back there this morning and I've missed uh, being in it. I want to introduce our passage this morning, which is going to be verse 13. We're going to take verse 13 by itself this morning. And I want to introduce it with this uh, thought, namely that one of the most baffling realities of the Christian life, to me, maybe to you, I'm going to assume as well, is this, that in light of the overwhelming realities of the glory of the gospel, in light of the overwhelming promises that we have in Jesus Christ, in light of the overwhelming majesty and glory and greatness of God, that we are distracted by so many things that we get distracted and tripped up and ensnared by the dull and the faded glories and the temptations of this world. It's amazing how little the affections are stirred up and controlled by the glory of who God is and who He is in Christ, and yet every one of us here can acknowledge that that is, in fact, the reality of our Christian walk. We don't love Christ as He deserves. We don't hope and find the joy and the promises that are in Christ as we should. In spite of all of the promises, the proofs, the encouragements, we too often doubt and are weak in faith. Believing many times the foolish thoughts of our own hearts, taking thoughts of the world and our culture and things and philosophies of this world, almost as if they have as much credibility as the Word of God itself, drowning out the glories of the truth of the Word of God. And... What Peter's going to draw our attention to this morning, which, frankly, all of Scripture does, but particularly in this verse, is to the reminder that this battle of the Christian walk takes place in the mind. It takes place in the mind. The reality of sanctification and growth in Christ and all of the joys of of ours in Christ, laying hold of those takes place in the reality of what goes on in our minds. And so Peter calls us here to discipline our minds, to set our hearts on Christ and His return and the grace that He has given to us and will be ours at the end of this age. And then we'll be wise, we'll be encouraged, we'll know the comforts that God has designed for us, we'll be steadfast in obedience, we'll worship rightly, we'll live righteously, and we'll know the grace and the peace that He called us to at the very beginning of this epistle. May grace and peace be yours in fullest measure. And it will be inasmuch as our minds lay hold of the glories of the gospel that we have in Jesus Christ. So the main idea this morning is this, that the hope of the gospel is essential to the Christian life, but it requires a disciplined mind. It requires a disciplined mind. Read with me verse 13. We'll read it by itself, uh, and then we'll look at it a little more closely. He says in verse 13, you'll notice the first word tying us into the rest of what he said in verses 1 through 12. He says, therefore, prepare your minds for action, keep sober in spirit, and fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As I mentioned, he begins with, therefore, what is the question you ask when you see a therefore? What is Yeah, what is the therefore, therefore? In other words, it's a transition term. It's reminding us that he's building on what has been said before. 
He's moving us forward. I mentioned this before. The, the fancy way to talk about that is that in Scripture, there is the pattern of the indicative and the imperative. What does that mean? It means that our lives and what we are called to do is based on who God is and what he has done. In other words, Peter is just here in verses 3 through 12, explained our hope and the glories and the reality of the inheritance that we have in Christ. And now, with this therefore, he's calling us to apply the realities of that hope to our life. That's all of Scripture. This is who God is. This is who man is. This is what God has done. This is what he's promised. Now live this way. And so that's what Peter's doing here in verse 13. Now, before this right up front, I want to note one just grammatical point. And that's because it'll, it's important. Uh, he says here, therefore, prepare your mind. If you're the New American Standard, therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Uh, those first two points, prepare your minds and keep sober in spirit, uh, they're translated most commonly, not in the ESV, which is actually a little more accurate on this uh, passage. They're translated as imperatives, in other words, as commands, as things we are to do. It, it would read almost as if he's giving three equal commands. Prepare your minds for action, keep sober in spirit, and fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you. But in fact, and this is just, bear with me for a moment, a brief point here, is that those are participles, they're not a main verb. The main verb actually is what's translated, fix your hope. Fix your hope is the main verb. The other two terms are translated as imperatives because they have that idea, but they're actually simply supporting the main idea that Peter is calling us to here, and that is, is that Christians, in application of our redemption, are to fix our hope completely on this grace to be brought to you. The importance of this verse, or the main idea of this verse then, is that we are to settle in our minds and settle our minds on the grace that is to be brought to us, and we are to do so by maintaining a proper hope, a proper perspective. So the center of this idea is hope. And so we're actually going to approach it a little differently. Our first point is going to be drawn out of that, the main idea, fix your hope, and then we'll swing back around to the first part of the verse and how we keep this hope and how we are to fix our minds on all that God has prepared for us. So let me note first is just the first point is that there is the centrality of hope to the Christian life. The centrality of hope to the Christian life. Hope then is at the center of what it means to be a Christian. The center of what it means of what we've been called to. In fact, the entire letter of 1 Peter could be summed up in this way. Living in light of our hope in Jesus Christ. Living in light of our hope in Jesus Christ. That could, that could sum up all of the letter of 1 Peter, and really 2 Peter for that matter. What does it mean to live in light of all that God has done for us and the inheritance that we have in Christ? Matter of fact, you remember he began that way in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to what? To a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Here he's really picking up on that same idea. We've been born again to a living hope. And now he says, fix your minds on that hope. Live in light of the hope and the salvation that you've been given in Christ Jesus. It's really a call to order our lives, to kindle our affections, 
and to understand the world and our place in it in light of who God is and what he has done in Jesus Christ. And it's really important to grasp this is because the, how we view the end of our life sets the purpose of our life. It defines our life. Our life is viewed of in the end. So, for example, obviously, so those who say eat and drink and be merry for tomorrow we die, see their end as having no consequence in terms of judgment and in terms of eternity. And so, therefore, there is a freedom to exercise the indulgence of our lust and of our minds and our own vain ideas. That's how those who don't live in light of this hope will live. Why? Because their end determines the purpose for their life, which in that case is simply to live it according to your own desires and your own will. But for the Christian who has been awakened to the glories of God in Christ, the end has a different purpose or defines a different purpose for our life, and it is to live in light of the salvation that we have in Christ. That's how we define our purpose. That's how we understand why we're here in this world, how we're to live in this world. Our purpose is derived from our end, the end for which we have been saved. Peter addresses that, or Paul, excuse me, in Philippians chapter 3. Don't turn there. I'll just mention it. But when he says that he presses on, he has one mind, he pursues one thing in life, and he says that for which he has been laid hold of in Christ Jesus. His end defined his present. It defined his whole life. It was measured and marked out by the reality of who he was in Christ and of one day of standing before Christ and being with Christ. And so our end, if you are a Christian, is the full experience of God's salvation, the full revelation of the glory of God in Jesus Christ, who is King of kings and Lord of lords, who will establish his kingdom on this earth, who will destroy all of his enemies, whose enemies are even now being made as a footstool under his feet, who will reign supreme and righteously over a kingdom that has been given to him and that he will again give to the Father. That defines our reality as Christians. That defines how we view everything in the world. It is our hope. It is our hope. And so he says here, fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Completely. He's calling here for a life of us as Christians that is not half-hearted, that is not dispirited, that is not cast down, but is strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the idea here then is that every part of your hope, all of your desires for the future, are to be supremely grounded in and ordered under this promise. This promise that he has given to us in Christ. And that's, that's a challenge for us because we have a natural tendency to be distracted by the things of this world. How often can the things of this world seem more real to us than eternity? Than what is coming? What it will last forever? And this is especially true for us who live in our nation with such affluence, such ease, such opportunity to indulge ourselves and to lack many of the cares of the world that others around the world face every day. 
And so there's an opportunity to forget this. There's a temptation to do this. And really, this connects back then to what he said in verse 6. He says, In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. Those trials that God brings into our lives are actually an expression of his love and his grace to us because they remind us to lay hold of those things that are true indeed. Namely, this hope that we have in Jesus Christ. When trials come that discourage and that disappoint and that bring us low, they remind us of our true inheritance in Christ. They remind us to look to and depend on those things that are eternal because he takes away those things that are temporal. This is particularly true. Remember that Peter's writing to a group of believers that are suffering. They're suffering. That's the point of the letter. How do you, how do you live righteously in a society that rejects and is opposed to Christ? And they're suffering, and he's writing to encourage them. And, and so we know that. That's really in some manner, in some level of intensity, the lot of every believer. If you live in this world, you're going to have troubles. If you desire to live godly, you're going to be persecuted at some level. It's a part of this, this world. But even beyond that, this world is filled with confusing providences. The experiences of fears and disappointments, desires that may or may not be met, and many of us have those desires that aren't met, those things that we expected that didn't come about, or the providences of God that seem sometimes to work so contrary to us. How do we think about those things? How do we understand them? Well, we understand them in the light of what Peter's calling us to here. We understand them when we put them into the light of the big picture of what God is doing in this world and in our life. That's preparing us and moving us towards this hope that we have in Christ. That we have in Christ. Where everything will be made right and everything will be understood at least clearer than it is now. And what provides us the stability in light of these fears and disappointments and uncertainties is hope. It's an anchor to our soul. Listen to how he mentions this in Hebrews. And then Hebrews 6. Let me just read this first. Hebrews 6, 19, he says this. He says, and again, in Hebrews 6, remind, be reminded that he's writing to those who are suffering. Those who are suffering consequences for living faithfully in Christ. He says... In verse 17, in the same way, God desiring more to show the heirs of the promise, the unchangeableness of his purpose, interposed with an oath that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we, have taken, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope that is set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters in within the veil where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us. It's an anchor to the soul. It's an anchor to the soul. It, 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 it keeps us tethered in certainty in the confusions of life because of the one certainty in which there is no confusion which will not be taken away and that is namely that Christ is returning and our salvation will be experienced in a fullness that now we can only fathom that we can only imagine. It is the hope of God's people. Notice what he says here then. So it's central then to the Christian life. It's the anchor to the soul. 
says, fix your hope completely on the grace uh, to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Look at the object of his hope. So it's, it's central to the life, and then look at the object. It is the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, the world often confuses and treats hope much like they do the idea of faith. And by that I mean this, is that faith is seen as an end in itself. Like there's the virtue in having faith, right? That's not new. We understand that. You have to have faith, and faith is the idea. And sometimes hope is treated in that same way. You have to have hope and hope. Like there's a virtue in having hope, and if you only have hope, that in and of itself is sufficient. That, of course, is not even sensible, really, but it certainly is not the biblical idea of hope and faith. The, the value of our faith and the value of our hope is directly tied to the object, right? I can't say that I hope that this pencil is, it happens to be in front of me, this pencil is going to save me, right? This pencil is my God. That's ridiculous. You'd say you're insane. And yet that's how it's treated sometimes. No, it is the hope that we have here in the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That is the object of our hope. It is the object of our hope. So just notice first that it's a grace-filled kind of hope. Fix your hope completely on the grace, the grace that is to be brought to you. This is a tremendous statement. The grace that to be brought to you. Now, grace and mercy can be defined, it can be distinguished in this way. There's overlap, of course, but mercy has the idea of God's goodness to those who are in need. That's the idea of of mercy. So you might think of mercy as what you would show to one in poverty that you help with a meal, that kind of idea. Grace has more the idea of God's goodness to those who deserve wrath. God's goodness to those who deserve wrath. It's grace. He's equated this grace already with the idea of salvation. What is salvation? Salvation from misery? Salvation from hard times? Salvation from what? It's salvation from the consequence for our sin. We have been saved from the wrath of God. In Christ, there is no condemnation. Outside of Christ, there is condemnation. In Christ, there is no more fear of bearing the anger and the wrath of God for our sin. He bore that on the cross. Outside of Christ, there should be every fear of the consequences of our sin. So here he says, the grace to be brought to you, all of the goodness of God that has been granted to those whom he has spared from the consequences of their sin by bearing it and removing it in Christ. So we sing grace, grace, God's grace. Paul says by grace you have been saved. The whole of the Christian life is of grace, is of grace. You know, a funny statement, or it's not actually, it's not a funny statement, but a, a, a helpful statement, a way to think, you know, when sometimes we get discouraged by uh, just the, the things in life that discourage us. Uh, here's a good reminder. We deserve hell, so everything that we receive beyond that is grace. Everything we receive beyond that is mercy. That destroys the idea of entitlement, doesn't it? We live in grace, and everything in our life, even the disappointments as well as the blessings, are an expression of grace. We have been given hope. We have been given promises. 
We have been forgiven of our sin. We who were condemned have been given life. That's that's the basic idea here of grace. But let me suggest something even more than that. If, If your idea of grace, if your idea of the gospel doesn't extend beyond not going to hell, let me suggest we haven't yet fully understood grace. The glory of the gospel isn't about not going to hell. That's, that's good. That's really good. But that's not the glory of the gospel. That's a part of the gospel. That is a wonderful reality of being in Christ. It is a necessary reality of being in Christ. But that's not everything. The glory of the gospel is this. That God in Christ has reconciled us to himself as sons. In his son. That's the glory. We have been reconciled to God. That you are a son and a daughter. It's not though he's kind of just freed you from the consequences of your sin. And now you can live with that that experience of not going to hell. It is that he's reconciled you to himself. So that you are brought into the most intimate relationship with him through his son. That... God in Christ has set his love on you if you are a Christian and has determined by his own sovereign choice and his own sovereign glory and for his own glory to love you in Jesus Christ as he loves his own son. That's grace. That's the end of grace. And the fruit of that grace is that we love his son in return. You want to know what the real fruit of this is in eternity? What is an example of this kind of grace to be brought to you? Just listen to this. It's in Ephesians chapter 2. So he's already defined that God has set his grace on you before the foundation of the world. If you are a Christian, he has in love adopted you in his son. He has given you redemption, the forgiveness of your sin. He's given you a spirit, his spirit. He's given you an inheritance. He's given you a hope. You, remember grace is goodness to those who deserve wrath. So he says, you who are dead in your trespasses and sin, you who indulge the desires of the flesh and of the mind, you who were by nature children of wrath, he says this, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ by grace, you have been saved. And he's raised us up with him and he seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Here it is. What is this grace that is coming to us? What is the object of our hope? This grace, it's here, verse 7. So that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. By grace, you have been saved through faith. What do we hope for? We hope for in this revelation of Jesus Christ... Among other things, entering into the experience of our salvation where God himself has described the infinite God himself has said his intention is to shower you with a measure of his goodness and kindness for all of eternity in his son. To love you as he's loved his son, to love you in his son, Christ Jesus. That's grace. This is the grace that is to be brought to us. And it is a certain grace. Look at what else he says. It's the grace that is to be brought to you. You might have a note in the translation of your Bible that says uh, being brought. Being brought to you. 
Again, just a minor translation issue here. It, literally, it is being brought to you. But the idea of that it's a grace being brought that is yet future, and so it's often translated here with the future idea, and that's not incorrect. But, but you really feel the power of it when it's being brought to you. And what is the idea then? It is to say this, that God is not passive in this grace. He's not passive in what he's doing, but God is now even actively working towards the fulfillment of all of his promises in Christ Jesus. He's moving literally all of creation towards the summing up of all things in Christ, which coincides with the revelation of Jesus Christ. He's moving everything in that direction. You're a part of this this great work that he's doing, it is even now as you speak, even to these while you're suffering, even in your own life, it is a grace that is being brought to you. It is a grace that God is right now accomplishing in your life and accomplishing in this world. It's a certain grace. It's not yet ours by full experience. It awaits the future, but it is certain. He's working towards it. It's this grace that we hope for, and it is... Guaranteed because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Right? Born to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. But notice this as well. It's a grace. It's the fullness of God's goodness to us in Christ that we hope for. It's a grace that is certain. It is even now being brought to us, being prepared. God is working all things together to the end to reveal Christ and, the experience, and give us this experience of grace. But it's also a Christ-centered grace. It's a Christ-centered hope. The object of our hope and the object of this grace being brought to you is at the revelation of Jesus Christ. At the revelation of Jesus Christ. In other words, this salvation, as one has said, is inseparably associated with the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. The mark of a true believer, he's already defined in verse 8. He says this, though you have not seen him, you what? You say it, you love him. You love him. The central reality of spiritual life is this. How do you know if you're a Christian? How do you know if you've truly been redeemed and regenerated? How do you know if you've been born again and trusted in Christ? It's simple. Do you love the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you love the Lord Jesus Christ? Love for Jesus Christ. Love for him for bearing our condemnation. A love for him that desires to please him. A love for him that gladly submits to his lordship and his authority in our life. And a love that longs to be with him is at the heart of a Christian hope. Of our Christian hope. Christ is at the center of this. Christ is at the center of the believer's affection, the center of our faith, the center of our love. Our hope is not not merely to get a bunch of eternal goodies. Our hope is ultimately to be with Jesus Christ. That is our hope. We love him now, and it's our love for him now presently that longs to love him more fully and completely, see him more in his glory, more in his majesty, more in his holiness, more in his eternal Glory, And that's what we long for, really. That's at the center of our hope is Christ himself. Remember, it is hope in him who has entered the veil for us. It's hope in Christ who's entered the veil for us and who is returning. It's the hope of the glory of heaven is to be, or the hope of the glory of heaven is to be with Christ. 
to be with Christ, who now we have fellowship with by His Spirit, the Holy Spirit who indwells in us, who stirs up in us affections for Christ and longing for that great day to be with Him. It's captured a little bit uh, in that song. They just made a movie about this. You probably saw it. That song, I Can Only Imagine, right? I Can Only Imagine. Only imagine the... The writer of that song goes through, What will I do when I see Christ face to face? Will I shout? Will I fall down? Will I be silent? What will I do? But the idea is, is that I'm, I'm thinking about that day. I'm wondering about that day. I'm, I'm picturing that moment when I'll be with Christ, when I'll stand before Him. I'm picturing what will I feel? What will I see? What will I do? Because that day is coming. And it's what I long for more than anything to be with him. And this hope isn't static in our own lives either. It's certainly not static in terms of the providence of God, but it's not in our own lives either. Hope is a present reality that bears, that bears re- fruit in, in the present. In the present. In other words, it's a sanctifying hope. Now, we're going to talk more about this next week. But I want to mention it here, is that this hope is a hope that produces in our lives holiness. Holiness. A desire to be pure, even as he is pure. It's it's not just a feeling. So, So Paul isn't, or Peter isn't calling us to just feel really hopeful. He's going to say, set your hope completely on the revelation of Jesus Christ to be brought to you, that is being brought to you. But then every other exhortation in this letter, indeed, really all of Scripture, but in this letter of 1 Peter, is built on this reality. Because you have this hope, because Christ is going to be revealed, because you have an inheritance, be holy. Submit to those who oppress you. Persevere in persecution. Don't be dismayed by those who malign you for your faith. Keep your behavior excellent and don't give in to the fleshly lusts which wage war against your soul. Live in light of this hope. It is an active hope. It is an active hope. And it's a hope that energizes and animates animates our whole entire life. And in that way, this hope is really, it's almost synonymous, and and you could say that it is synonymous with the idea of faith, with the idea of faith. Remember, hope or faith as it's defined in Hebrews chapter 11 is this, it is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And then he gives a whole list of the lives that demonstrated the reality of this hope by their obedience. Their faithfulness to, to God. And so to fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ means that it is fleshed out in your life by obedience. It's not merely a, a feeling. It's not merely that I, I feel really hopeful. It's not against that, but it's not only that. It's something that animates you. It pushes you to obedience. It helps you to remember that when a trial is crashing down on you, when the circumstances in your life seem like they just want to crush you, and some of you are going through those kind of things, whether it be illness, whether it be marriages, whether it be circumstances in life, it is the reality of this hope that enables us to persevere. 
That enables us to go on, to continue, to have courage. It's a hope that animates, it fleshes out in our life. So it's an active hope. Let me just mention this to you. He says in chapter 3 of, or of 2 Peter, he talks about our hope and the, that, and the assurance of what God is doing. He says in verse 10, The day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with the roar. He talks about the destruction of all things. He says, we're looking for and hastening the coming day of God because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning, the elements will melt with intense heat. But according to his promise, we, in verse 13, are looking for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. That's our hope. That's what we're waiting for. Yes, destruction will come, but we're waiting for the salvation. And then he says in verse 14, Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless. Be found by him obedient and faithful to the promises. Now, we're going to get down the road to to 2 Peter, but... You know, it's always interesting, I find sometimes, when people are fascinated with eschatology, the, the end of all things, the summing up of God's purposes here in this world and this age, who are more fascinated by the nuances and the complexities of it than they are by the reality of it that would cause them to live a holy life. But our hope, if it's truly the hope that he's calling us to here, is a holy hope. It is an obedient hope. It's a character-shaping hope. We won't turn there, Romans 5. And it's a hope, let me go lastly on this point, that it's anchored in the Word and illumined by the Spirit. In other words, this isn't a hope that an unbeliever can have. It's not a hope that an unbeliever can have because they don't see the glory of Christ. There's nothing in there to long for. There's nothing in him to long for. It's not that maybe an unbeliever can't know about these things and can't admire them at some level, but there's no felt hope within the soul and within the heart that actually motivates and comforts in the silent and the secret places of our inner life, of our mind. But for the believer, that's exactly where this hope works. Within the deepest part of the heart, And it's a hope, then, that is informed and fueled and maintained and sustained by the promises of Scripture. Again, it's not some ethereal, detached feeling. It's a hope that's directly related to faith. And our faith is explicitly defined by the Word of God. He'll get into that a little bit later in 1 Peter. It's a word-centered hope. How are we learning about this hope even this morning? Because it's revealed in the letter of 1 Peter. Scripture. God-given Scripture. How do we learn about all the nuances and all the the ways that this hope is going to work out? Because Peter's going to tell us. Paul's going to tell us. Jesus is going to tell us in the Gospels. The prophets, as he already looked at at just before this, are going to tell us about this in the Old Testament. In other words, it's a word-centered hope. It's a scripture-centered hope. Again, it's, it's not just this, this general kind of subjective feeling. Listen to what he says again in 2 Peter. Now this, beloved, the second letter I'm writing to you, chapter 3, in which I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord 
and Savior spoken by your apostles. In other words, you, you knew about this hope and you know about this hope and I'm reminding you of this hope because, beloved, it's been written down. It's been written down here in a book called the Bible. That's how we know about it. That's how we grow in it. Peter, Paul says in Ephesians 6.14, stand firm, having girded your loins with the truth. With the truth. He's going to say later in Peter in uh, chapter 2, put all these things like newborn babes long for the pure milk of the word that by it you may grow in respect to salvation if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. Long for understanding and greater knowledge and greater obedience to that knowledge by knowing the word. So we know of this hope. We know of Christ. We know of the glory of the future of salvation because the Spirit has enabled us to believe the word. And so, obviously, you're only going to know this hope in as much as you know the word of God. Your strength and your enjoyment of this hope that he calls us to is going to be exactly parallel to your knowledge of Scripture and is going to grow according to your knowledge of Scripture. The measure of your spiritual disciplines, your reading, your listening, your obeying, your memorizing, your meditating, your praying over the Word of God will determine the hope that you have and the strength of it. It will be strong or weak based on that alone. And so it is a word-centered hope. It's a word-centered hope. If you say you want to grow in this hope, then pour yourselves over the word of God. Memorize it. Pray. Talk about it. Listen to it. Read about it. Think about it. Meditate. Obey. This hope will grow and grow and grow and grow and you will be like a tree firmly planted by many streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. And whose fruit does not wither. Who prospers in everything that you do. It's a word-centered hope. And I would note this as well, just as a footnote. That it's a hope that we're reminded of every time we take the Lord's Supper together. The Lord's Supper is not, not just a thing that we do because that's, as Christians, what we do. It is commanded by the Lord of the church, by our own Lord and God and Savior as a means and a reminder of the hope that we have in Christ. We proclaim his death until he returns. We remember the precious cost of our salvation, that it was with precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless. We remember the certainty of our being with him and sharing that marriage supper that we'll have on that great day. We're reminded in the Lord's Supper of his spirit whom he has given, who unites us to him who is the Lord of the church and to one another. It's meant to strengthen our hope. So we fix our hope completely in response to the eternal work of the spirit who has illumined to us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ And we are to live in light of this hope. Now, how do we live in light of this hope? How do we fix our hope completely on the grace? How do we know these things? Well, I've mentioned it just briefly in terms of us us pouring over Scripture where these promises are contained. But then he gives us an instruction here at the first part of verse 13. He says, therefore, 
Preparing your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Being sober-minded, the ESV translates it, which is a good translation. More literally, you might know if you look at some older translations, I didn't check the King James Version, I'm going to assume that it is this in the King James, is gird up the loins of your mind. Gird up the loins of your mind. Now, I don't know about you, but that's not language that I use every day. And so that might write it first, but it's more literally what is said here, translated more literally, is gird up the loins of your mind or bind up the loins of your loins, really, your waist. It's really what it is. But gird up the loins of your mind. This may not be immediately impactful to us, but it's really a powerful metaphor for this disciplined thinking. And so this is the second point. There's the centrality of hope and the discipline of hope. The discipline of hope. He's calling us here to disciplined thinking. What does that metaphor mean? Interestingly, it's only used, this exact form of the word is only used here in the New Testament. But its root is commonly used to speak of pulling up loose garments. It refers actually to a belt that was worn. And so it was a leather belt or some other form of belt. And the flowing robes, we don't wear robes here. Uh, well, I mean, maybe when you get out of the shower. But other than that, we don't walk around in them. But they did. And so when they had to move or to do work or in battle a soldier, they would take up these loose robes and they would tuck it into their belts. So that they would have freedom of movement. They wouldn't be impaired and they wouldn't be tripped up. Uh, We won't go there. 1 Kings 8.46, Elijah is fleeing from King Ahab and he says, gird up your loins and he ran. And he ran. Jesus, if you'll remember, girded up his loins when he went around the table in John 13 to wash the disciples' feet. Maybe in a more modern illustration for us, we could think of if you watch professional football. Right? They have their jerseys really tight. So they, one, so they probably can show their muscles. But other than that, too, they have them really tight, especially linemen packed up under their pads. And that's so they can't be grabbed. So when they're running, it's harder to get a hold of them. If you've ever watched wrestling and not WWF, but wrestling, then you'll notice that they wear these tight uniforms. And the reason is, is so there's nothing loose on them, nothing to be grabbed. It's hard to get a hold of them, especially when the other guy's sweaty. But here he says, he uses that idea, and he says, you gird up the loins of your mind. You, you get rid of those loose things that could trip you up. You bind them up so that you can be prepared for action, so that you can be prepared for work, so that you can fix your hope on the grace to be brought to you. And there's really, because Peter has strong Old Testament allusions all the way throughout, there's, there's most certainly a connection here in his mind with a very similar phrase in Exodus 12, 11, where they were to gird themselves up as they were preparing to flee out of Egypt, to, to obey the Lord and to get out of that land as God led them to the land of promise. And no doubt he, he means to capture that a little bit here. We won't spend time on it, but Jesus uses the same idea again that's parallel to Peter's words. And remember, Peter would have been hearing these words when he spoke them at first. But he says in Luke 12, Be dressed in readiness. Really, gird up your loins. Same phrase. Be dressed in readiness. Keep your lamps lit. Be like men who are waiting for their master when he returns from the wedding feast so that they may immediately open the door to him when he comes and when he knocks. Blessed are those slaves whom the master will find on the alert when he comes. Peter 
Peter might be remembering those words even now as he writes this letter. And he says, gird up the loins of your mind as you wait for the return of our king. The revelation of our king, of our Lord, of Jesus Christ. The, the form of the word here speaks of a decisive action. A decisive action. In other words, it's not something that we approach casually. It's a determined decision. It's an immediate decision. Snatch up these loose ends. Be aware of the things that easily entangle you and get a hold of them. In this case, it would be like put off all distractions, all the wrong thinking, all the worldly cares that would diminish the strength of our hope in Christ and hinder our ability, not only our ability, even our desire, even our affections to live in light of this hope and all that God has done for us in Christ. It's very akin to Paul's words, take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And this is necessary. You'll remember in that, again, in the same context of Hebrews 11 and 12, that whole section about living in hope, living by faith. He says, lay aside the sin which what? So easily entangles us. And again, that's, that's a similar idea to here. It's important that we have this hope. It's necessary not only for spiritual strength, but to battle sin, to resist the devil, to live faithfully in a world that's hostile to Christ. And it's our responsibility. Uh, Calvin, I think, caught this idea well. He says this. He says, He intimates that our minds are held entangled by the passing cares of the world and by vain desires so that they rise not upward to God. Let him learn in the first place to disentangle himself from the world and gird up his mind that it may not turn aside to vain affections, empty, worthless affections. We read as a family not too long ago, Psalm 4, they love what is worthless, the unbelieving. Calvin goes on, for he commends not temperance only in eating and drinking, but rather spiritual sobriety, when all our thoughts and affections are kept as not to be inebriated with the allurements of this world. For since even the least taste of them stealthily draws us away from God, when one plunges himself into these, he must necessarily become sleepy and stupid, and he forgets God. And the things of God. And that's true. And so he calls us to discipline our mind. So as I noted earlier, let me make this point again. That the mind is essential to the spiritual life. The mind is essential to our spiritual life. Again, I noted earlier, let me say it again. The mind is also, well, I noted that the mind is, uh, that hope is similar with faith. But the mind is synonymous with the heart. With the heart. It essentially speaks of this, that that center of our life, that, that part in us that reasons, that thinks, that makes decisions. It's connected then to the will. It's connected then to the heart. Matthew twenty two thirty seven says this. You're the, Jesus answering, what is the greatest law? Uh, commandment of the law, answering that question. Pulling from Deuteronomy 6.5, he says this, You shall love the Lord your God with all of your what? Your heart, your soul, and with all of your mind. With your mind. Our mind is essential to the spiritual life and to the battle with sin. Spiritual life, again I say, spiritual life and the battle with sin and where we respond by faith and find the encouragements of the word begins here in the mind, in the thinking, and the way you reason. 
what occupies your thoughts, that place that only you and the Lord know, where it deforms your attitude, makes decisions, influences your decisions. That's where it all begins in the mind. And again, this is something that an unbeliever simply cannot obey and cannot understand. Because it requires seeing the glory of Jesus Christ. It requires having tasted of his kindness. It requires being born again. If you'll remember, 2 Corinthians 4.4, The God of this world has blinded the minds. He uses a different term, but it's the same idea. It's synonymous. He has blinded the minds of the unbelieving that they may not see the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. In Colossians 1.21, the mind of the unbelieving is hostile to God, at enmity with Him. But for those who have been born again, all of that has been removed. And all of a sudden, Christ, who was not glorious, becomes the most glorious being in all of the universe. God Himself, God the Son. And He becomes loved and longed for and trusted. And He becomes the one who is supremely revealed in Scripture that our hearts long to know. John said, we know that the Son of God has come and given us understanding in order that we may know the truth. Peter began his letter with saying that the very, the very reason that we can have a living hope in the resurrection of Jesus Christ is because God has caused us to be born again. So if you're a Christian, you've tasted the kindness of God and you've been given a sight of the glory which is in Christ Jesus like a light turned on in a dark room. But even though you've been given these things, even though God has done that, it requires discipline. It requires discipline. Spirit enables obedience. He doesn't obey for us. You know, sometimes we think that we could take this like, well, if I'm saved and I have this hope, it's not really something that I need to work for. But that's not at all the way Scripture presents the spiritual life. The Spirit of God, when you are saved, when you become a believer, and God regenerates your heart, out of which flows faith, out of which then the Spirit indwells the believer, the Spirit does not obey for you, the Spirit does not believe for you. What He does is He enables you to believe. He indwells and He prompts and He convicts and He stirs up and He motivates, but He doesn't actually obey for you. So when he says fix your hope completely, it's something that you and I must do. It requires a disciplined mind. It will not happen automatically. It will not happen automatically. That's why God can give commandments and warnings even to believers throughout Scripture. Because a believer can live weakly, can live at some measure disobediently and know always the discipline and conviction of the Lord. Or you as a believer can have The spiritual growth that is promised and to have a maturity of faith, to have a hope that lays hold of these promises and lives with the comfort that they are designed to give in the midst of even great trials. But it's going to be on how much you discipline your mind, on how much you discipline your mind. And this, again, comes with all of the opposition of an enemy, of an adversary that John mentioned last week that wants to do everything he can to distract us from this kind of hope. And if you'll remember, in the garden, what did Satan attack first? It's not a secret. Right, mind, the thinking. He wanted them to think differently about God. He wanted to think differently about them and their relationship with God. 
He wanted them to think differently about their environment in a way that would cause them to disobey God. And, and that's how he always works. He focuses on the mind. Paul said to the Corinthians, I, I fear lest as Satan deceived Eve in the garden, your minds might be led astray from the simplicity of devotion to Christ. It's in the mind. And if we ever lived in a time where there are things to distract our mind from the hope that is in Christ, it is today. We are constantly tempted to be distracted with what is temporary, what is earthly, and what is superficial. To constantly be pursuing immediate gratification with never-ending sources of cheap and passing pleasures. Hence the internet, right? We had messages on that. Hence this constant entertainment that we are bombarded with day in and day out through the internet and through TV and through smartphones and through computers. Constantly, constantly, constantly a barrage of things that are designed in many cases to distract us in our minds from the glories of Christ. To, to make everything else seem more immediately profitable and entertaining and pleasurable than Christ. Guess what? To meditate and to read scripture requires that you make choices. It's discipline. It means you don't do one thing so that you do something else. And how easily we can spend, especially our youth, especially our children, how easy it is to spend hours upon hours upon hours surfing YouTube, watching Instagram, checking Facebook, watching a whole episode in a day of a TV show, and yet be bored if you have more than 10 minutes in Scripture. Because I can watch that and like eating candy constantly have this passing pleasure, passing pleasure that I can always fill up with another passing pleasure. But in the end, it leaves the soul empty and it doesn't allow us to know the hope that God has designed to give us true joy and lasting joy. And so Satan wants to constantly, he's the God of this world, he constantly wants to distract and confuse and our own sin and our own flesh wants to constantly lay hold of those things that are easy rather than the things that will take effort. And so when he says here, discipline your minds, prepare your minds for action, take up the loose ends of it, be aware of the things that are distracting you from your hope in Christ and the future glory that is coming. It takes intentionality. It takes a purposed and a willful and a directed heart and mind to lay hold of these things. Discipline involves in guarding what we allow into our minds. This means, beloved, TV, cable, movies, internet, reading, music, conversations, what you look at. It means you have to lay hold of those things and discipline your mind and know the effect they are having on you. Now, People will respond in various ways to what you can and can't do, of course. Like, what, what does that mean to take up the loose ends? What can you watch? What can you listen to? What can you read? So on and so forth. Uh, people can come to different convictions on that, but I can say this. While different convictions may vary, this is an essential question to ask. Are my entertainment habits and choices promoting holiness in my mind and my heart or diminishing it? 
Along with this, is sin becoming more offensive to me or less offensive because of the way that I feel with my mind? Is my heart more God-centered and Christ-centered or does God fade more and more into the background and Christ seem less and less interesting than everything else? Do the promises of God and the glory of God and His greatness and wisdom and majesty as revealed in Scripture seem more true and more real or more boring and less interesting and less compelling? Those are the kind of questions that you ask. It's whether or not you bring to what you watch and what you listen to God's lordship over all things. The reality of sin and death and eternity and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, of Christ returning to judge the living and the dead. Whether you bring to what you're doing that as settled realities in your mind by which you filter out everything else. And you can say, is this promoting my understanding of those things or is it diminishing them? And you're not even going to ask the question unless you care to begin with, right? So this is the question of a believer. An unbeliever isn't going to wrestle over that. But a believer will. And Peter encourages us here to do that. So we must be disciplined. Well, let me just mention this last part uh, for time's sake. Prepare your minds, discipline your minds, gird up the loins of your minds. Be aware of those things that are either moving you towards a greater knowledge of this hope and longing for Christ or distracting you away from it. And lastly here then, be sober, be sober. And this I'll just mention. This sobriety basically refers to this, to having a mature perspective on the realities of life and of sin and of righteousness of an eternity. Of being self-controlled because of an understanding of salvation. An understanding of salvation. It's this sobriety that's necessary to live and to grow into holiness. So, what do you allow into your mind? What shapes your hopes and your dreams and your deepest desires? God, if you are a Christian, has redeemed us. He has given us Christ. He's not merely saved us from our sin, but he's reconciled us to himself. He's given us every hope and promise. And let me tell you, Star Wars and Lord of the Rings and anything else that you can read or watch with all of its special effects and wonder are, I don't even know what to describe them. They might have a momentary entertainment, but compared to the glories of Christ, compared to the wonder that Hollywood can't even begin to fathom those glories, more or less reproduce them. And so we need to lay a hold then of the greatest glories that God has given us in Christ. Fight the sin that is within us because we know that we'll present ourselves before Christ. Be encouraged in the midst of our trials but because we know that they're only temporary and God is just weaning us from this world to lean more heavily on Him. Pursue Him in prayer. Beware that the devil prowls around. And fix our hope completely on the grace to be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And next we'll talk about week, uh, about the obedience that this produces in our life. I pray that this is true of you. As we go to the Lord in prayer, be praying for your own heart. Just be thinking as you leave here today as well. Of evaluate your life and evaluate the things in your life that are moving you towards this hope or away from this hope. And make decisions based in light of it. And if you don't have this hope, then consider... Consider the end, that Christ is returning. For us who know him, it is for salvation. It's a joyful hope. If you don't know him, it's for judgment. But grace can be yours today by faith. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word.
Help us to apply it. Would you, Holy Spirit, convict us and do your continual work in us, showing us those areas that are that are not yet or even right now being 